You only get into, out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to former Manchester United and Rotherham defender, Rodri Jones. Yeah, I'm Rodri, Rodri Jones. I'm 30 years old at the minute. Um, I work in television production at the moment. Um, I was a footballer, professional footballer between the ages of 16 and 21. Um, spent three years as a scholar at Man U um, back in the end of the 90s and then um, spent a kind of a season and a half with Rotherham United. And so that would have been start of the start of the century, I guess. Um, yeah. As is the usual custom, I am joined by Anthony Olsen and Ryan Pulford. Fellas, how are we this fine day? Good. Yeah, going well. Going Doing, well. Yeah, going well. <laughs> Doing all right. right. Ryan, how are you, mate? It's going. Not sure how well it's going. But uh, yeah, I'm all right, mate. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, you know, keeping on, keeping on during this. Uh, the the pre festive period, you know, it's it's you know we're not far out from from Christmas, so it's uh, the excitement, it's building, it's building, so to speak. Um, today we've 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 got Roger Jones on the show. Roger is a, a football turned TV producer. So for our opening question today, what I want to know from you chaps is is that if you had to choose somebody from the world of football and give them a job outside of football. What would that be? And Ant, I'm going to start with you, my friend. What would it be? Um, I well, think what, what would it be? Who would it be? Who would it be? I'd go with uh, Big Sam Allardyce as a as a car salesman. I can see that. I just think he, I just think he's he'd just be you know really friendly, welcoming. He'd probably sell you maybe one or two dodgy ones, possibly. But yeah, that's what I'd go for. I did think of Steve Bruce as a ticket inspector on a train. <laughs> but, um yeah, I went with Big Sam. Would he be like secondhand car salesman? I think he'd dabble in a in a few few different areas, yeah. Um I think he'd want the second hand lot off first and he'd get the good stuff in. Depends who you are, really. See, Depends, I'd, ima- I'd, yeah. I'd imagine he'd be one of those who'd who'd be working at the second hand and complaining that he never gets a job at Mercedes, you know. And, and maybe if he was a, you know, maybe if he was a foreign car salesman, he might get a job at a Mercedes or a BMW. But as it is, he's he's stuck at Volvo, so to speak. <laughs> Volvo, yeah. <laughs> um, Ryan, same question to you. Somebody outside, someone within football to do a job outside of football. What would it be? Who would it be? Uh, I'm going to go with Jürgen Klopp and he's going to be one of them fellas at the zoo that does the feeding. You know, when they have the microphones and they've got the lion or the penguin and they tell you all about what the diet they eat and where they come from and he's just dead happy and he just loves it. And 
most people think that the Lions are for, and he'll just go on to this mad. <laughs> He'd be really good with the kids, cap. wouldn't he, as well? Yeah, his little Chester Zoo outfit on, and, and away he goes. Cap Chester Zoo cap, be brilliant, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, he could do the he could do the uh, he could do the giraffes and feed them by hand because he's quite tall, isn't he? Yeah, he can clock. Yeah. Um, I wrote four down. Um, I also <laughs> had Steve Bruce, and but I had him as a call, working in a call centre. Hello, hey. How can I deal with your problem? See, Steve Bruce for me would be a burger van outside the match on oh, match day. Yeah, that's a good yeah, he, he, and he'd be like, he'd always give you extra onions, but wouldn't charge you for them. I tell you, um, Sean, <laughs> Sean Dyche would be a mechanic for me all day Oh, long. yeah, absolutely. All day long. Uh, I had, the other ones I had written down was Ian Dowie, butcher. Uh, <laughs> Alan Pardew, estate agent, standard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Ian Holloway, taxi driver. Oh, yeah, yeah, Bottom. I can see that. Oh, with, yeah. his, with his cap on, chatty chatty uh anyway enough of that nonsense we're with uh, roger jones today and this is an interview that we we actually recorded a little while back um and the reason we kind of held on to it was was that we not long after that then spoke to guy branston guy branston who played with roger jones um and we did ask guy about roger and he had some interesting answers which we'll play as part of this episode um but in terms of Roger's episode and the background and why we wanted to speak to him. And do you want to tell the listeners why we set up this interview in the first place? Um, so in the early days of, of when we were looking for, for people to interview, we were having a bit of a Google and um, there are obviously other search engines available. I think Ash Jeeves is still going. Um, so we were having a little look around. We were having a search for, for footballers who'd, who'd gone through some difficult times. And it's obviously a bit of a weird thing to, to kind of search for, to be honest. But uh, we came across Rodri and we came across his store and we, we thought it'd be really interesting and really good to get him on and uh, and, and see what he, he had to say about it really as well. Obviously, he played for, for Man United. He played at you know, good levels uh, throughout his career, a, a short career, but a, a, you know, a good one as, to, as well. So, you know, we, we, were, we were excited to talk to him. Yeah, absolutely. And he was very, uh, very forthcoming on his uh, email exchanges and yeah, no, he was, he was great value. And Ryan, we always have a theme. Um, we, we sort of, the three of us in our production meeting went back and forth for a, for a wee while to get this theme nailed down. Yeah. But do you want to tell the listeners what, what this week's theme is, mate? Yeah. So the theme is being awoken from your childhood dreams by the realities of adulthood, which on the face of it might sound a little bit sinister, but when you listen to the interview, it will make a lot of sense. He was a, Boyhood Man United fan, got the chance to play for the club. And as Ange just touched on, it was a career that didn't last too long and probably didn't get out of football where he thought he was going to uh, without giving too much away. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that's this week's theme. Absolutely. So we're now going to leave you with Roger Jones's interview and then we will see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. Fantastic. And big question, Rodri, who do you support? Listen, I, I used to be a massive Man U fan. When I was growing up, I used to be one of those kids who used to cry for days when they lost. And it's a weird thing. I, I don't support anyone now. I, I still kind of keep in touch with the game and I know what's going on. But I, I'd be I'd be fooling you if I said I was a Man U fan now because I just I don't feel it inside me anymore. It's weird how how we can kind of um, I can go you can go from being so passionate 
kind of obsessive with the club to, to not support them at all. And that's not because I'm angry at all for or you know hold any resentment for for not making it there. It was just kind of I think I think I supported them so much that when I joined the aura kind of went. I think I was just guilty of supporting them too much when I was little, if, if that is possible. Yeah, that makes sense. It's almost like the that thing where they say, yeah, never meet your heroes kind of thing, isn't it? You know what? You're, you're completely correct. I think once I joined them as a player, in a way I was indirectly competing with some of these you know, legendary players. So it kind of just maybe changed the dynamics of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um, we can obviously detect a, a Welsh accent, Rodri. Where, whereabouts are you from? Yeah, I'm from Cardiff. I mean, you'd wonder how Cardiff lad had ended up United, but you know, all, all the top clubs. I mean, they didn't know they scout over the world now. But when I was when I was younger, they kind of focused a little bit more just on um, Britain and and Ireland. Um, so you know, United had scouts all over the country, and I was just fortunate to be kind of picked up, um, went through the whole trial process, and ended up. And sign, a, sign in a scholarship with the club. Moving on to, to to your story, Rodri, you obviously joined Man United when you were about 14, is that right? Yeah, I, I was at Man U. I signed school by forms when I was 14, so that means every weekend I'd be going out to play and then all these summer holidays you kind of sacrifice. You, you sacrifice in a way in terms of, obviously, I, it was an amazing opportunity to go up every holiday, but then... The occasional holiday, you'd be thinking, oh, like my mates are going on exchange trips to France and Germany, and then I'm going to play football. I think that's what people don't realise. They always just see the end result of the fame and the fortune and the success. But they, there's a lot of um, things that players have had to give up along the way. Um, life experience, so to such. You're kind of in a little bubble when you're football. You, you feel like your identity is slowly being... Um, kind of wrapped up in this game and it's great then if you can um, progress to the top you're kind of still in that little bubble in a way yeah so for those for those who 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 don't know how did your how did that move to Man United come about you know what sort of player were you in what position did you play yeah I, I was a I was a centre half really I, I used to play midfield a lot but when I was uh, United they, they played me centre half I was I was left footed uh, around that period there's not many left footed centre halves it's a bit of a rarity so mm. Obviously, I was a massive Man U fan, so I would have played anywhere they, they asked me to, to be honest. Um, so that was at 14. Um, he, he, like, he say, like I said, you go up every um, holidays. And then I just found out, I think it was about 14 of us got scholarship that year. So you're looking at 98, which turned out to be one of the most successful years in United's history, winning the treble in the same year that I joined. So uh, as a supporter, which I was at the time, you think, oh, this is amazing. These are golden moments. So I, was, I went to the new camp to watch watch the you know the the European Cup final but then as a player it's a bit daunting you're thinking oh, I've got to try and um try and break through here um I mean yeah yeah I'm standing in my position at the time so you were you were kind of encouraged to try and um study the player that was in holding the shirt at the time and then he left the Amsterdam for that season I was thinking oh it doesn't get better than that um yeah, so, so that's what happened, really. I mean, I left home when I was 16. So that, that that's a big thing for a 16-year-old to, to do. You know, I, mean, I had a, you know, I had close friends, um, tight-knit family. And then you're kind of, um, well, what, what you have then is, you know, you, you're thrust into a fiercely competitive environment. And then 
at the end of the day, when you want to kind of switch off, you can't really because you've just gone back to digs, which, uh, you know, um, they had like a network of um, normal everyday people who'd um, give us kind of um, accommodation. So there's always a reminder you're just there for the football. And then, you know, you're kind of building that pressure upon yourself there and all those um, all those trials your parents have took you to and, you know, they've driven you all over the country, get sacrificed a lot of their time. So you've, suddenly you feel like, I, I had worries at the time. I, you know, it was a big decision to move home, but I was thinking, well, who can I speak to? I didn't want to worry my parents because they're just, you know, um, preparing for their son to leave home. And also my friends, how, how can you tell someone oh, I'm worried when that's a dream for most of them? I mean, it might, might not, you know, some, I had some Liverpool fans as, as friends as well. But you know that that's their dream and thousands of other kids around around the country, around the world. So you kind of just keep things to yourself. So you just suddenly build in this little prison of not, not being open and honest. Did you almost feel like you had the responsibility of as you say, what is, you know, every, you know, in, in air quotes, every young lad's dream is to, to go and play football. And uh, did you feel like you had that weighing on you that you couldn't say, maybe I don't want to do this because you thought, well, how many people would kill to, to get this opportunity? Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing, really, because this, this that's, that was my dream ever since I was a five-year-old. I remember my first school report in, in school, the, the teacher put at the bottom of the report, good luck with the football. But then... You look to statistically and think, oh, well, the chances of me making it are very slim. But I mean, that, but you've always got to have dreams in life. If you just live to statistics all the time, then, you know, you, it's pretty dull existence. But I do think what, what, what happened is my mum my was, was like a secretary. She was just dealing with requests from different kind of clubs. So, my mum my and dad are not from a football environment, so they don't know what's best for the child. They don't, you know, it's, it's, it's uncharted territories for them, really. Um, and I was a deep thinker. I was quite a sensitive person. So, you know, you're going into this environment where at a time, you know, it's a, it's, it's full of banter, which is just part of the game. And, but, you know, you, you feel like you have to conform a little bit, you know, the, the stereotype of the football and stuff. So you, you, you kind of start disconnecting from your true self. Um just because you thought that's the way you needed to be. Was there anybody around football at all that you could speak with? You, you know, you, the team that you were playing for at the time, or you know, anyone at Man United who you'd be able to have those conversations with? Listen, if if I'd gone to someone at Man United and said, "Listen, I've got these issues and problems and and these, these concerns," listen, they, they would have done something about it, but. Probably the issue was because it wasn't standard at the club. It wasn't a case of when you joined, like you'd have your body fat tested, you'd have all these kind of physical tests and stuff, but you wouldn't have anything. Uh, sit down with anyone to talk about maybe the psychological impact of, uh, and you know how you deal with leaving home. And just just those kind of every the, the well-being side of things. So when it wasn't standard, kind of provided a standard, then you think, well, maybe they just expect you to just get on with things. So. It's, it's difficult for a 16-year-old who's still maturing and still and learning about himself to be able to really um, indicate themselves or, you know, it's really kind of um, pinpoint down themselves. Oh, well, I need to talk about this. So I think maybe that definitely when you're that young, the, probably the responsibility comes more from the club at that, at that stage. You were there for a, for a short while. What was it like while you were there? Was 
those things you were worrying about were they you know did they they transpire the way you thought they might do no it's a, it's a weird thing we had, we had a great tight-knit um squad that it was a very welcoming club united that was part of the success when you were there um they had kind of local kit men they had local kind of canteen women in the in the canteen and stuff and Ferguson made it like feel like a tight family to be honest so even though you were the biggest club in the world maybe arguably at the time it felt like you were at the local league club to be honest um but I think what happened with me is you know you, you you're dealing with the homesickness and then I had a big injury before the first game of the season so you know bearing in mind that I'd done the whole pre-season you know you're putting through your body through through kind of turmoil really I hadn't been used to that kind of physical strain on my body um so then you know mentally you're kind of you're kind of tagging along but I had a bad injury so it meant I was like I didn't play till the end of the first season now when you have injuries then you start I wasn't overthinking and you're, you're starting to doubt things and then you've got too much time to think and then because you're so far away from home you kind of feel like you're adrift a little bit um, I, I, when you have a first injury you think oh well yeah you know it's just a bad luck I'll get back you know it happens to a lot of people but what happened with me is my second season, a similar kind of thing happened when my knee kind of broke down before the season started. Now, that's where the dark feelings come in because then you start to doubt yourself as a person. You start to doubt whether you, maybe your body just isn't designed for full-time football. And, and it's difficult at the time because, you know, I had, I had great physiotherapists who were great, but end of the day, their main priority is get you physically fit to be able to return on the pitch. It wasn't their job to really ask how you were in terms of the, the psychological impact. There's a big difference between um, asking someone, how's your knee and how do you feel about your knee? They're, they're two kind of separate things. Um, and it's a difficult thing because you're starting to build this prison yourself and think, oh, I can't speak to people anywhere. Um, but a lot of that just lies in yourself. And I suppose it's that bit of that perfectionist, that bit of um, that drive that takes you to, to succeed in football. It can be kind of double-edged, really, because you put yourself under a lot of pressure. It's probably obsessional to a degree. So then when you're starting to see kind of chinks in your own armour, then you kind of don't really want to face up to them because you kind of think, oh, maybe it's maybe some sign, sign of weakness in, in me. So if I just get myself fitter, if I just get myself um you know fitter in the gym then i can kind of run away from those feelings and i i, I think if you don't deal with feelings they kind of um they get stuck inside you and i think that that's that's kind of what happened to me but then you know my third season at united i was i i did my, my knee settled down a little bit and i started to you know i was playing i was playing pretty well um you know you'd have monthly meetings with your coach who would give you kind of feedback honest feedback and there wasn't any i can't remember any meeting where the coach said listen you're in the you're in the threat i'm not having your contract renewed here you need to work on this he just said you're in good form keep going so then, then what happens is um one day we just we just gathered at the training ground and i think it might be february time and then you just 
that the word goes around that Ferguson wants to see all uh, third year. So I was in my third year there in the dress and in, in his office one by one. Now, just going back, when we signed kind of school by forms with United, the first contract where we signed United, you'd go to Old Trafford and sign it with Ferguson. I felt like he, he amazing of, of the man that he felt like it was his responsibility to welcome you to the club. Well, it was his. He felt like it was his responsibility then to tell you what was happening with you with your future. So a few guys went went in and and got good news, and then I went in and I like I, I wasn't under any lot pretenses. The chances of me making it were still pretty slim, but just based on what my coaches had, I thought I'd, I'd maybe get another year. So when the words come out, you know, the person says, "Sorry, son, we won't be renewing your contract." It's a difficult thing because. You know, this is a man you've admired since you were five. He'd been at the club since 1986, so since I was four years old. So he's like a giant figure. So to hear him say those words, then the fall is far greater than it would be if it was just my coach had pulled me to one side. So although he's trying to do what he thought best in terms of uh, as as the figurehead at the club, maybe it wasn't the best thing for a, for a 20, I think I was 20 years old at the time. Um, and then what happened then, you kind of, trying to just find another club you know the, t- the the club would contact other clubs on your behalf but you kind of I didn't have an agent at the time my mum and dad didn't didn't know what to do um did you ever um did you ever at that time think was was your next door always I need to find another club or was there ever any thoughts of I'll move back home and and you know maybe I'll see what other <laughs> options there are or was it your mind still focused on on being a footballer at that point yeah, no, I suppose at that time, because it's all you've known since I was 14, I've gone to all these clubs. You know, you go, you got to keep going and you've got to keep trying. I, yeah, obviously, I, I've had worries. I think well, I've had quite a few significant knee injuries and just only turned 20, I think. So, so you, there's a back in mind, maybe, you know, this isn't um, the, the world for me, but then... It is difficult because you're a bit of a bow because I was still trying to recover from being released to United. You know, it, it's, it's a big, big fall. But then you're trying to bounce back by trying to find another club. I'm trying to, you know, kind of trying to extend your career, really, trying to get kick-start it again. So it would have been great to, to be able to say, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to go and prove Fergie wrong. To be, to be able to prove Fergie wrong, you have to get your mindset right. Unfortunately, there was no one really who could get me to look at the positives of the situation. Yeah, I, I managed to find another club in Rotherham. I just happened to have, I, I just played a trial game for them. I, there was a guy who was um, one of the, on the backroom staff at rather um, who knew me because when I was younger I went to Leeds United on trial and they wanted to sign me to school but see he remembered for me me from back then so that's how I got a trial with Rotherham. I just happened to have one of those games where everything went right I knew just based on that game that they would sign me just because I it was just one of those games that you know you, you have every now and then but when I joined with them I knew, I knew straight away that it wasn't the right club for me. They, they'd had two successive promotions to the championship, and they're a small club, so it just shows you there was a tight knit team there. Um, were you, were, were you yeah. joining at that point, Rodri, as a, as a first team player? Yeah, I, I joined the first team player. So, you know, that's a big thing as well. You're going from maybe a different culture, you know, United, it, it is a bit just everything's done for you, and you go to Rotherham 
where you, you know you have to it's a different culture but also i was leaving a dressing room with friends suddenly in a dressing room of adults i hadn't been used to that kind of environment where you've got you know guys who are married and stuff guys who've got kids so it was just it was i just just knew straight away but then i couldn't speak to anyone i just felt like i've just got to get on with it here you, you you're just a bit lost you just need someone just maybe just um just to throw a light in the right direction um the, the club there was no you know the, the lads were right there was there was nothing wrong with them i mean the manager ronnie moore at the time he was old school he was he was a great manager but you know on a personal level i don't think he knew much about me me off the pitch which it was one of those things but but what happened with me i you know i had a two two a contract for two seasons there. my first year i had it my knee was still playing up a little bit but then like end of the season I thought right I'm just gonna beast myself in the gym every day in my in my off season now where you think I should need a rest I was gonna beast myself because I knew mentally that you know I was having these doubts but I was like you know like I say if you just get physically fitter so then I, I came back to pre-season and I was flying fitness wise but then there's there's still these dark thoughts I was living in a flat in Rotherham by myself so what 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 started happening is I would train and then I just go back back to the flat and just shut the curtains and wait till the next day. And when I had I was playing for the reserves and we'd had a we'd have we'd have a reserve game in the night and then I'd be all day just battling with my thoughts, um, just exhausting myself. So by the time the just just thoughts of oh you're not good enough and you're letting everyone down. It's not just those thoughts, it's those thoughts just circulating in your head and pounding it head all day so by the time i got to the game i was just exhausted for even playing and uh, i'd always been someone who kind of led it by example on the pitch but i was late, i was playing i was on the pitch just think oh, i just want to grow to swallow me up i was just looking at benching i just want to be there eventually because my, my my form wasn't great i was i would i'd I'd also gone to the doctor with or without the club knowing um, because I had this awareness that something wasn't right. I couldn't quite put my finger on what. And I was just prescribed antidepressants. Well, I was, I was taking antidepressants. So I, I was training and playing with antidepressants with no one at the club knowing that this was the case. The fact that you, you know, as a young man in a difficult situation there, had the, the mental fortitude to, to take yourself to the, the doctors and you knew something was wrong and... and you know, and and they've uh, did they give you a, a diagnosis of depression at that time? Yeah, I think it was a, it was a difficult one because it, the, the doctor wasn't it wasn't a club doctor, but it was, it was literally there was a surgery opposite my there was a practice opposite my flat in Rotherham time, but the guy had some contact with Rotherham, so he knew the man. So it was a bit of an awkward one for him because obviously he knew one of the players was coming to him confidentially away from the club um yeah he, he, he did he i think it's a difficult when you go and see the doctor because it's not you're not going to see about an ear infection or something depression is something chronic so it's difficult for a doctor to really diagnose you in the time that they've got because purely for the fact people don't really know what causes depression it can it can um differentiate in every individual really so to obviously they to cover themselves they're always going to prescribe you medication um but that's not always 
not always appropriate for every individual, really. I mean, for me, it, it, it was, I felt numb when I took them, and I always wanted to feel it. For me, it was more trying to understand what's at the root of this. I, I've always felt like if I can understand what's at the root of this, then it kind of takes it away, really. I, I think sometimes if once you start labeling yourself and saying, oh, I, I suffer from depression and stuff. Yeah. Did you feel as though you weren't able to talk to anyone at, at the club about that? Because it may impact how you're viewed in the changing room, in the dressing room, and, you know, it, it, like that type of thing. Yeah, I, I probably do. You know, it is a very natural environment. But that's not to say if I had spoke to someone that, that someone wouldn't have opened up back to me and, and showed me the light. I think a lot of the time the stigma can be in your own head. You, you always naturally think you make up stories in your head and think things are going to be worse if you spoke than they are. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, really, I, I think. But maybe at the time, yeah, I, I, I hadn't really developed any strong bonds with players there. I, I, uh, because I wasn't really in, you know, I, I was feeling like a bit of lack software. So, I mean, if you're if you're disappearing back home after every training session and kind of um, locking yourself in the house, you're not, you're not really going to develop any bonds with anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, mean, I mean, it kind of ended up with me asking to see the manager and then we hadn't really had any of those kind of meetings in his in his um, office and he was probably just thinking no he's just going to moan about not being in the first team which is probably most most times every, a player wants to see the manager <laughs> and that's usually usually the issue but for me I just went in and said oh just want to rip up my contract and I remember him, he was a bit startled because he probably doesn't never had that really bearing in mind this was around Christmas time I still had about six seven months of my contract to run so effectively, I'm sacrificing that money because if I ask to rip up my contract, I, I'm not entitled to that money. I mean, in all fairness to them, they, they didn't stand in my way. And they also um, financially did give me a little bit of the money that was entitled to me at the time. But for me, I, I, again, there's the same awareness that took me to the doctor in the first place and the same awareness that made me think, you know, I need to, I was homesick, I need to, go back to that environment I need to be closer because I kind of had lost I didn't trust myself up there I, my, my feelings were my thoughts weren't, weren't doing me any favors so and also I still had concerns about my knee I don't think my knee I, I think it's difficult when you've had such um significant operations and stuff when you're younger you're kind of battling against the tide level you need a bit of luck in that regard I mean I hadn't been fortunate in, in that area um so I th I'm just lucky that I, I suppose what it is I've, I've never really been pulled towards alcohol I've never really been pulled towards gambling probably my main addiction has been too much self-talk so I had that awareness because I I wasn't altering my conscious with consciousness with substances so my if, if I'd been, you know, had a taste of alcohol stuff, who knows what would happen, you know, because you, 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 that obviously would impair my um, my judgment. What did you, what exactly did you say to him? Did you, did you explain that you were on antidepressants, you'd been to the doctor or did you, did you kind of just say, you know, I just don't, I don't want to be here anymore, I want to leave or how candid was that conversation? I didn't tell him, I didn't tell him, I, I don't think he, 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 he he didn't know about any antidepressants. I didn't say anything. I just I might have just said I was homesick. Um, might have said that my knee wasn't wasn't 
Uh, to be honest with you, I can't remember. I know I didn't mention that because I suppose there's still a stigma attached to it. Even then, I mean, it doesn't matter if I tell him then because I'm, I'm leaving it. At least it'd give him maybe a reason to why I hadn't been performing on the pitch because I probably still felt a bit guilty because it had took a punt on me. Yeah, I was a free transfer, so it didn't cost them much in transfer fee. But then, you know, they still paying me decent wages and I, I felt like they hadn't seen the best of me. I, I felt like I'd let them down a little bit, if, if that's a weird thing, even even though he, he never made me feel that way. I've got no bad words to say about him. It was just, this, you know, he, was, he had amazing, amazing results with Rotherman and other clubs. It was just a case of, he, I was a young lad um, thrust into this adult environment with a knee that wasn't doing me any favours. And as I say, I've not got a bad word to say because they did give me money that they didn't need to do. So so for them to do that, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for them, to be honest with you. I, mean, it was, I, I think in life, you have to take responsibility and accountability for yourself. You can always say, oh, well, if that person did this or this person has said that, I think you can hide behind that all your life. To be honest, I think... I built this kind of prison and these ideas that I couldn't speak to people. And, you know, I, I, it, it'd been building up from, you know, back when I was younger. And then it just kind of commonly. So, I mean, well, what's sad is that, you know, I'd worked so hard to reach where I got to. And it kind of ended it ended on a bit of a damp squib, really. Mm-hmm. I always had, because I had knee problems, or people could always, oh, well, Rodri asked because of his knee, and I he's down because of his knee. In a way, I, I could def- I could hide behind that as well because I always had a reason to, to um, oh, yeah, my knees just hurt me, or even if it was something more within my mind. So you, you have, I've just learned a little bit more now to be gentle with, with myself and, you know, the, the, I've, I've understood myself a little bit better. So what, what I wish I'd had the mentality that I have now and the understanding of thoughts and, and mental health that I have now when I was starting off, because then I would have I would have been able to see the warning signs a little bit clearer before I would have been able to see them before I'd kind of be pulled down 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 the hole, so to speak. When you um when you were in that in that position in in you know in Rotherham, and as you say, you're sort of shutting yourself away, and it it, it seems like such a, a it can be such a lonely existence, can't it? it that, that environment, and and then the, and as you say, if, if you're someone who, as you've said, sort of lives in your own head and can can be very self-critical and stuff, it can be very difficult. And I can imagine that if you were to be able to to have spoken to someone or have been able to talked about talk about it at that time do you, do you think perhaps things might have turned out differently or do you think you were almost as you say it, it was always going to end the same way or do you think if you'd been able to get those feelings off your chest and speak to somebody about it it might have your career might have gone on slightly longer you never know with, with ifs and buts and stuff i mean if i hadn't had that injury at united that first injury i might have made it as a footballer even though I was carrying those thoughts my behind, but in the back of my mind. But I would have been able to just that the, the, the success of my career would have just masked all that, and then maybe it would have reared its ugly head after I'd finished because I hadn't dealt with with certain things. But I, I know I know people go on about you know talk to someone, talk to someone, and 
the, the, the reason it's important is because it's the same as when you're talking to someone, anyone, you can see someone, you can see where someone's not free and where someone's creating their own problems when you speak to someone else, but it's far more difficult to see that within yourself because you kind of justify it in your own mind. You only see the world through your own lens, so to speak. So you can kind of see it a little bit clearer with other people. But when when you're living in your own head and you're having these dark thoughts, even just even if you just stood in front of the wall and just talk to the wall, you still feel better afterwards because you can verbalize, you can hear what, you, what you're thinking and then it can, it can kind of... Um, steer you into action so to speak and kind of give you a shake but it's much better than what about speaking to someone who knows you inside out or someone who who can just give you that bit of insight and can just through through that light through the darkness so I, but, but for that ability to be able to speak you have to have that you know that awareness in, in yourself and i think sometimes now we are in danger of maybe filling our lives with so many distractions. You can kind of just keep trying to run away all the time. Um, but I, I do believe that if you don't um, face up to, to things in, in your own life, they, they will come, come and bite you. I mean, people do think, I think there's this kind of thought that mental health just equates to mental illness. Well, everyone, you know, it's a spectrum, isn't it? everyone kind of falls on the spectrum obviously you don't want to really be pulled to that to the lower end where you it's very difficult because your thoughts are just i'm attacking you left right and center so it's difficult to to think straight at all when you when you reach that point but it's it's like that 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 thought of physical fitness people don't wait until they're obese until they do anything about the physical fitness it's just that that thought of people maybe in the middle of the spectrum that can just think, oh, well, I could, I could be more, you know, more mentally fit. I can develop my mental skills. It, it is a skill set um, because I always think prevention is better than cure in, the, in, in every walk of life. What sort of things do you do now differently now that you understand yourself better? I, I, I think it's not just one thing I've done. It's probably a combination of things. I, it's even small things I'll do. I'll try and take negativity out of my life. Even like I won't listen to it's, it's completely trivial, but I won't listen to too many sad songs. Like if I listen to too many sad songs, you start your mindset. You're starting to think negatively. Trying to it's not it's not thinking positively all the time. It's trying to take negativity out of your life. And I think people. Because sometimes you can be surrounded by these positive slogans, and it, it, it can kind of feel a bit false sometimes. Um, but for me as well, meditating's help. Not not that you've got to be careful with meditating. That it doesn't just turn into something you do for twenty minutes a day, and then the rest of the day, you, you know, you get angry and you 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 kind of um, in your own little cage, so to speak. But I think what meditation does, it just gives you that. Um, that stillness and ability to just to see thoughts differently. I, th I think what meditating helps is um, it gives you a, a bit of a um, separation between you and your thoughts, so you can just see them differently, and it just gives you the ability to um, respond rather than react, because I think what I've been guilty of um, over the years, I'd just be reacting every thought, I'd just be chasing every thought and just taking you down blind alleys. Um, so, so meditations help me and and also just being asking myself what's true in every situation so i'm not because 
we have a tendency uh, naturally our minds will just add concepts and labels onto everything but if you kind of strip it down to what's basic then it can be kind of freeing in some way for, for instance let, let's go back now when Ferguson um released me all, all that happened was he said you no longer you will no longer have a contract to play for money we're not going to give you a contract to play for money nothing but what my mind did was going oh well Oh, I'm a rubbish now. I've I've let everyone down. I've let I've yeah. I, I, how am I going to face anyone? No, I just thought oh, I, I just went with those, but but they're not true. They, they, they are um, labels, your concept, you're adding stuff that doesn't. It's not sim simply true. So I think if you just strip life down to what's factual and 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 also as well, when you're doing these things, you have to be gentle with yourself as well. It's it's about being accountable being gentle i do think sometimes we live in a culture where we, we wait until we hit the wall and then we oh, right, i'm going to get someone to to sort of, i'm going to go and see someone now i'm going to see someone instead of maybe having that self-awareness right well what what can i be doing every day what you know everyone's different i wouldn't give anyone some any prescription because everyone's carrying their own own little experiences through life but have you got a well-being routine? Are you are you sleeping enough? Sleep's a big thing, and I don't think I think we underestimate it. Sometimes people say, "Oh well, oh, I can get by in four or five hours sleep." Well, yeah, you can probably get by, but are you optimizing um, your mental fortitude really um, by by not not sleeping enough? I can really resonate with what you're saying, Roger. I I I think being being gentle to yourself, being kind to yourself. I think a lot of people, you know, could could do with doing the same and and i certainly you know i i put a lot of pressure on myself and and i think that's where a lot of the things that as you say a, a lot of the, the thoughts that i've had have come from i just want to kind of you you say that you've left rotherham i, I assume you moved back home back to back to cardiff at that point yeah what I, would I, you... I think I study a business degree and i, I just i was playing semi-fashion in legal worlds and but my, my knee was still, you know, I, I, the, the cloud had been lifted because I was back, you know, at, at home with around friends and stuff. But unfortunately, my knee was still deteriorating. So what happened? I was playing something freshly for a couple of years, and then I had to go and see the knee consultant, and he basically said he got the knee of a 50-year-old ex-footballer at 24, so I had to retire completely at 24. Um, what was that like? Obviously, you've spent a lot of years. You know, yeah, well, difficult. I mean, I thought I'd come back and everything's okay now. But what probably come really happened is what I still probably still really hadn't dealt with fixing and releasing me. I probably deep down I still thought I wasn't good enough. So even though you know I I'd, I'd had that drive to go back to uni and I managed to get um, start a career in TV and TV production. Um, when I retired, when the, when the um, consultant said you've got a near 50 relaxed football at 24 i equated that to you're worthless now that that's the way i took mm. it on board with a 50 year old you know 24 24 you're near 50 year old oh well that's, i've got a dull existence now it, it, it's that story you can't tell yourself so probably for the rest of my 20s then i'd still be succeeding in tv but still coming from a place of not feeling good enough and a lack of self-worth now People can excel, and excel on the outside in life, still carrying those um, deep, deep limiting beliefs, I, I, I call them. Um, and for me, it reached a head where I'd, um, 
I've got two young sons and I had my youngest son and I I was just pushing myself too hard with work. I was um I was working on a project where I was funny enough, I was working on a project involved a um a documentary on a Welsh champion bodybuilder. So it's all about <laughs> developing the body <laughs> and time my mind my mind was um playing havoc because even though even though I was successful externally, I was it was still coming from a place of fear. It was still coming from a place of lack. And I think a lot of people, it wasn't coming from a place of um, joy and a place of freedom. It was coming from a place of thinking, I'm not good enough. So I think whenever you're doing anything in life based from that approach, I think you're going to find you might hit the wall. Not even hit the wall. You might reach a point where you're thinking, oh, this, this feels empty because mm. you're doing it for the wrong reasons and I, I think that's what I've been doing and then I, I, it ended up with me I, I knew I, I went back to see the doctor this is about three years ago and um, and the doctor and the doctor was asking me questions saying oh, do you have any dark thoughts and I went yeah 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 like like it was the most matter of fact thing in the world yeah. and, and she said oh would you act on it so no no I've got two young kids I wouldn't act on it but she was still like it was I, I think to, to be honest it was when the penny dropped on me I was thinking you, you've you've been negligent of yourself to a degree because it's become so it's become so like normal for you and I always had a tendency to put other people in front of me. I used to people, people please a lot. And then it just struck me that, no, the most important in life person in your life is you. And you, you have to, um, you, you have to look after yourself a little bit better, to be honest. And um, that's not to say I wouldn't do anything for my kids and, and my wife and stuff, but I've probably been um, negligent to myself to a degree. Um, well, that's that, that great adage, isn't there, about, in order to be able to look after anyone else, you have to look after yourself first. I, I think so. I used to think it was a bit selfish and a bit self-indulgent, but you, you know, you're not. Are, are you kind of the best parent you can be, the best friend you can be, the best husband be if you don't look after yourself? Because you have to have that kind of. Um, I, I suppose what you call it is like a inner sanctuary that you can maybe call it that you can just you know exactly where your limits are, where your boundaries are with work, exactly what your values are, exactly um, you stop judging yourself against other people because everyone else is carrying different different things around in life. At the end of the day, when all said and done, it's only a judgment about yourself that truly counts. And I, I think people are too busy comparing themselves against each other. And um, and I think as well, like, like I think we've alluded to before, you can fill your life with distractions nowadays. But I, I, just, I just felt in that period, I think, you know what? I, I've never reached that point where I've done anything externally, where I've reached that point and right, that's it now. I don't have to do anything more. It's that external chase for... Um, it's never ending. Now, what I'm saying is, if, if if there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and achieve and and um, trying to achieve things externally in your life, but when that becomes, when you're trying to get those things for internal validation, well, it's, it's, it's you're going to be chasing that all your life. I suppose the hard part is when you're younger, you're probably more mentally weak and naive because you don't have much life experience, but you're, you're physically maybe at your peak of your powers. 
Whereas when you get older, you get a little bit more physically weak, but you probably get mentally tougher, a bit more resilient. You've got that life experience around you. Do you think sports clubs should maybe take that into consideration and in, in the early years of play, players' careers? Yeah, I think so. I mean, listen, the brain's still developing until you're 21 years old. Um, so you bear that in mind, the maturing process. And people mature at different stages in their life as well. So it's not a case. So you can just say, you know, there, there might be a child who's at 10, uh, two children who are 10, and then one's just far more um, mature than the other person. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I think the responsibility comes from clubs at that age, especially when kids are so impressionable. Um, but I... I it's also that you could argue then you, you did say well when you're um, when you get older you get more mentally tough and mentally resilient but if you don't do the work when you're younger what you could argue is that um people who get older more stuck in the ways as well so you, yeah there's two ways to look at it in a way because the younger the, the way the younger you can get to work and understand yourself or you know I'll do something with my ch children now, my five-year-old. He started to be a bit more aware of thoughts and feelings. So I start labeling the thoughts he's feeling. So he he feels that he's got um, permission to show those feelings. There's nothing wrong about feeling sad. That's part of life. You can have, you have to accept the whole gamut of emotions, you know, from, from joy to sadness. There's nothing wrong with feeling sad at times. There's nothing wrong about crying. There's nothing wrong. Mm. I just feel like you've got to, got to normalise that side of things. So, so what you what you have is a next generation born team with the feelings. And I think, without getting too like woo or anything, but maybe you have a better society because of it. Because people are just more generous to themselves, and then it kind of um, radiates outwards a, a little bit. But yeah, I I, I do think maybe. I did hear actually a podcast with there's a guy called Paul McGuinness. He was um, one of the academy coaches when I was at United, and he was I think he, they'd asked him about you know kids I think six seven being scouted for academies. Now it's a very difficult thing because clubs would argue that it's just fun at that age, but I, I would argue as well, or I'd just put it out there, but that once you're contacted and um, in any capacity by a football club. How to manage expectations, whether that be maybe maybe the children a little bit young at that age to really understand, but then parents aren't. You know, the parents can start start thinking, well, my my child's is is going to be the, the next big thing. And I, th I think at that stage, the responsibility comes from children because and from the club. Sorry, because end of the day, you could look at a club that. It doesn't cost them anything. It's nothing for them just to cast net as far as wide as possible because it's such a competitive environment and it's a win-win situation for them really. Because from that net that they might cast wide, they know really statistically maybe one or two of those players are going to really make it. But what about? I'd argue now maybe there's more points where children can be kind of let go and stuff, and that disappointment can manifest itself. That thought of being not good enough can maybe take them away. It's, it's about looking at the humans, really. It can take away from someone living a fulfilling life because they, they, they that seed's been planted and they and it takes them away from maybe creating an impact in a different industry because they, they'll they put that kind of um, ceiling upon themselves. Whereas have, you'll have, obviously, some children where they, they'll react, oh, I'm going to prove that person wrong. But you could argue that that's still coming from a place of fear and, and trying to prove other people wrong instead of just making yourself 
happy, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jonah was, um, he was from Man United. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. We, we used to go out and socialise and, and, and try and, he, he had, um, I think a big, was it the fact that he he, he had serious hearing issues? Yeah, he, it, he's, he's, he's had, he's quite an interesting guy, really. We, we we sat on on one of these calls with him for almost two and a half hours. Really, he was he was really interesting, to be honest. And I think for him, he, he remembers feeling very um, having very difficult sort of difficulties with sort of anxiety and that sort of thing when he was a child, and then kind of growing up into becoming a footballer. It, it, it you know th- that environment can obviously, as you've said, be a, you know be very cutthroat, and I think he found that very difficult. Um, and I was suspect. I hope he's painting me in a good light because I, I put I put him in, into a lot of our uh, nights out and um, socialised with him quite a lot when I was a, a player. So, well, that's that's it's kind of funny that you mentioned that guy because we were obviously you, a lot of um, stuff that you hear about your time as a footballer was that you were someone who was very good with 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 different people around the dressing room and 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 kind of took that role as as you you know as a captain as part of what you wanted to do. Was was that something that you were aware of in terms of being part of Rodri's personality at all? Or is that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't honestly, Roger, if if I again, if I look back in my career, I think I I always perceived anxieties as just worries. You know, we we all have them. You know, anxiety are crippling. Obviously, you know, anxiety was crippling to people and you know, panic attacks and things like that. You know, the pressure we was under as footballers or put ourselves under as footballers, I imagine, I like to think a lot of us had that. Um, and, and the ones who learnt to cope very quickly, you know, moved on from it and, and perceived them probably as worries or levels of worry. You know, uh, many, I can remember many a times being within, a, in a, just about to go out for a game and, you know, I can't remember how to play football. And literally, like, my blank cannot remember how to play. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to do? And, 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 and as you start to unwind and start to relax and start to realise that, you know, you're going into a stressful environment and, and a lot of people couldn't cope. And that's where, you know, I, I noticed with, with Rodney but, but back in the day and, you know, he was coming in, he was quiet, he was incredibly quiet. Um, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd come in at a car school, a very vibrant car school, uh, Mike Pollitt and a few of the other older lads. And, and he's travelled over from Manchester and he'd come from a big club, but he was totally different to what you expect. You know, it, it was a shell shock to be in now at Rotherham. So he was staying in and around uh, the Rotherham area. I think he was in the hotel and, and I was living in Rotherham and... and uh, we had a Portuguese guy who spoke hardly any English, but it, but he he was so he was so friendly and so nice. I said, "Listen, we'll we'll go and have a drink tonight. We'll go and have some food, and um, we'll go out." And I said, "Listen, Rod, you know you're in the dressing room. You know who's out tonight, lads? You know that sort of thing." And he 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 came along, you know, and and sometimes he didn't want to be there, but then, then other times he, you know, just being there helped him. So it was something that that was important for him, um, and you, you know you, you build a you build a, a better relationship with someone by sometimes just putting your hand out and saying, hey, mate, how you doing? Welcome back. You're still listening to Man Marking. I have Ant and Ryan still in the in the virtual studio with me at the moment. Obviously, just listen to Rodri's interview there. 
One of the, the the interesting things that you said, and it and it, it goes back to something that we spoke to Pete Lowe about last week, was Pete was talking about how important as an academy coach it was to involve the parents in decision making and in progress of young players so that they've got that connection and interest and they can make sure to keep tabs on things that are at home. But Rodri was quite insistent that he he wouldn't he didn't tell his parents when he was going through those troubles and when he was having some doubts about his you know whether he wanted to be a footballer or whether he was enjoying it or not and I thought that was that was quite interesting and Ryan obviously you were on the interview with me when when he kind of said that was that kind of eye-opening or, or did that seem like you can imagine being in his position and I'm thinking the same sort of thing yeah definitely and it, it wasn't from a, a, a point of view that his parents weren't supportive I just think in, in his nature when you're speaking to him he's very conscientious he's very tactful and I think he almost didn't want to burden them, although it wouldn't have been a burden. And if you look at that academy setup, especially at United at the time, biggest club in the world, fresh off the back of, I mean, in, in 98, when I think he was there, they were almost at the peak of the powers with the 92 being sort of early 20s at that point and probably high expectations. And a lot of academies have like former pros, kids playing in this. If you look at United now, I know Richie Wellens has lads there, Robbie Savage lads plays for it. So these are lads who have grown up around football, always been involved in football, probably got ultra-competitive parents. And I just don't think that was his personality. He was a bit of an introvert. He definitely had the ability to play. Um, but as touched on, he was always conscious about being a burden to his parents, which is it's, it's kind of sad in a way. And I think it's sad because if he went back, he probably would have asked for a bit more from them and he probably would have got it, which I think what makes it sad. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination they weren't supportive they just weren't football fans they weren't from that background and he said that didn't he He said they weren't really into football so I think he's probably just one of those kids who was quite bright naturally gifted when it came to football and just sort of fell into football more than drove himself into it Um, so yeah I can I can understand really because it is a huge commitment he was obviously born in Cardiff born and raised in Cardiff what four or five hours from Manchester so when he did get that opportunity to go there it's not just running them 20 minutes on a Sunday and once a week for training in the week it was probably up and down the country to various tournaments it was until he moved in probably in, into digs it was likely to be a lot of uh, what a lot of weekends taken up making sure we got to football and got to training and had all his kit prepared so it is a huge responsibility and if you don't know the word of football you don't know if what you're doing's worth your time or not and I think that was probably the situation his parents found themselves in the situation he found himself in yeah absolutely I think it's really sad they didn't feel like and and as you say it wouldn't have been anything to do with the support that he got at home it sounded as though he's you know we had a supportive background that would that would you know that was there for him and what have you and it's just it's quite you know I suspect it's probably quite common of of people at that age in that situation one of the things that he did talk about which is done in in later life which has been to kind of help manage his, his mental health and his mental well-being and something he uses to ground himself is is meditation and it it's an interesting one really it, it hasn't come up an enormous amount of times but and it is something that that we've spoken about kind of off air before. And I know it's something, a technique and, and something that you've done in the past. Do you kind of want to give the listeners a little bit of an idea maybe about how meditation is in practice? Because I suspect a lot of people's perceptions of what meditation is are probably quite different from from how it is in, in reality. Uh, yeah, well, to be honest, I, I think most people, I thought, especially like you have to, you know, be good at it. I don't think that's the case at all. 
I think I use a, an app called Headspace. Um, there are others available. There's plenty of them. Um, and they're all really, you know, generally focused around the same sort of themes and techniques. Um, Headspace has some nice, funny videos on there as well, which I quite like. Anyway, um, the um, basically, it's, it's, it's just about giving yourself that 10 minutes. You know, often I think we've, you know, there's all sorts of techniques that, that are thrown around and it can be quite confusing for people. But, you know, it might work for, I'm not saying it's going to work for everyone, but basically it's just focusing on your breathing and just giving yourself that time to think and that that your brain become a little bit less clouded, a little less, you know, running around all the time, trying to think of one thing in and then think of another thing and all just being a bit chaotic. And I think for me personally, meditation just gave me that 10 minutes just to, just to focus really. Um, and like I say, it's 10 minutes a day. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really have to be every day. You know, when you come back to it, uh, you can pick up where you've left off. And there's always a feeling of, particularly with the one I use, you know, there's no pressure on it. There's no pressure to be good at it. There's no pressure to be bad at it. Just do it, sit there and, and take that time. And I think it is a really useful technique, particularly if you've got such a lot of things going on just to get away. And I think that's why people say, you know, with, with exercise as well, there's not much else, you know, I, I did a 10K uh, recently. There's not much else you can you can do other than think of running when you when you do an exercise. And it basically is just about training your mind to do that and just to just focus on, on the things you can control, the things that are happening right now and, and not getting carried away with what's happening two weeks away or two weeks ago, just stay in there. And it's, it's a really useful skill to to have i don't think you'll have it all the time because i i don't have it all the time but you know to try and stay present in the moment it, it's just so effective and it it it's effective for other people around you as well you know when you're doing these things and when you're doing these things to look after yourself we've said it before it not only helps you but it helps everyone around you because everyone else becomes a little bit more relaxed you know you're not such a i won't don't want to say the word burden, but you're not causing anyone to feel un- uncomfortable around you at, in those moments. So it, it's superb, really. And I can, I, I know a, a lot of um, a lot of people do use it, and it, it's been, I think, even you know through the pandemic, Headspace have given it out for free for NHS staff, which you know there've been a lot of offers for for everyone who's been working through the pandemic as well. So, but it's been really, really nice. That's Headspace. I assume people can can find that on Twitter yeah. and online. Yeah, so Headspace on Twitter. I think I do think they've got a Twitter. But yeah, if you just type it into your App Store, you'll find it. It's really, it's really good. There's there's plenty of them. Um, so find the one that that suits you. I'm not going to say you know one thing's going to suit everyone because that's not how it works. We, yeah, we know that's not how it works. You know, I think be, it's like, I think it it's about giving different things a a go, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think with meditation, it's probably quite a nice representation of something that people might consider not the type of thing that they would usually do. And if it's not for you, it's not for you, but you can you can give it a go, can't you, in your own space? Yeah, and exactly. I, I think, do you know what? The, I'm trying to, um, my like memory of this, what I thought meditation was, was to sit there and, and be like, oh, <laughs> kind of thing. 
that when I was younger, but it's it's completely not like that. I imagine some people might still think that's what it's like, but it, it's not. It's it's just a you know a, a nice little break from from the world for ten minutes. And I know you've you've got to use it on your phone and stuff, but it, it is a break. It is quite nice. Yeah, yeah it's a transfer in introspection, really, isn't it? And some self consciousness. It's just sort of. I I mean, I've always struggled with that. Like when I go to bed at night. I, I often I struggle to just turn me me thoughts off. So I think with an app, while most people might say, "Oh, it's an app," I think they do help you, don't they? Just focus on yeah, something because yeah. some people yeah. aren't just good at sitting there in silence. No, 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 they're not. And it, it is good. The, the sleep ones are, are pretty nice. You know, you, you get to lie down in your bed and just listen to it. And I think you know some people go to bed with like the radio on or, or anything, and it's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when people fall asleep with the telly on, which I've been doing quite a lot recently when i've been sitting downstairs but that's because you keep um, watching cricket that's why <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that, that's that's the the beauty of it is you can do it anywhere and you know I, we, we bang our phones so much and you know we need breaks from an and then everywhere and the message just gets mixed but they they are really helpful at times as well thanks for listening lads thanks for for being with us and, and, and giving us your thoughts as per usual our um our, our sort of bi-weekly or you know twice twice a month sort of not for me clive episodes the last one that we did was out friday just gone um and we talked about whether football was becoming a more friendly environment for the lgbtq plus community so that's out now that's that's well worth a listen we had some assistance from uh, john holmes from from sky sports for that so that was that was a really interesting conversation that we had and we have another episode out on friday um another episode of flat caps which is about the former man united and swansea player alan davis uh, and that's actually featuring uh, ollie Kay, the uh, the journalist who who wrote the adrian doherty book which has a lot of similarities with Rodri's story and, and is actually something that Rodri talks about in his quick fire, which is which is to come. Um, you can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man. At the moment, due to it being the uh, the festive period, uh, people are opening up their advent calendars. We've got our own man marking advent calendar going on on Twitter. So there'll be one of those every single day where you can see what is behind the magical door for me and Ant as we as we welcome you into the the world of goals. Goals, goals, and more goals. So check that out, and don't forget to use the hashtag Where's the Talking Lads. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us. We're going to leave you with Rodri's quick fire. You've been listening to Man Marking, and we will see you next time. Then, which is, who was the best player you played with at youth level that never made it? There was a guy called Leon Jean. He was at Cardiff. I suppose he kind of half made it. He, he played a little bit for Cardiff, but. He was amazing. He was a year above me, um, but he, was, he came from like a really tough background. Um, so I, did, I, I think he was um, up against it from the start. Now, if you're going to say the best, Joe Cole, without a doubt, he was amazing when I was a kid. Did you play, um, I assume you played against Joe Cole, did you? It was weird. When Joe was um, younger, every club in, under the sun wanted him. He was literally like, you know, like you do moves on the playstation like flicking the ball over people's heads and stuff he, he'd be doing it on the pitch i've never seen anyone like him but west ham i didn't t- i think west ham had you know he's he, he was a cockney guy but he, he was at united on trial a few times and he we played in a trial like a tournament together and he won play the tournament and like i know ferguson was desperate to sign him but he's just he was just west ham through and through honestly now you look at his career and you, you know he, he won i don't know how many caps over 50 caps or whatever and he won the premiership with chelsea and stuff 
he underachieved. He was that good when he was. I think he kind of suffered. He was that, that era where he had like a lot of big midfielders like Vieira and Petit, and he kind of got put out on the wing by Mourinho at Chelsea. But he was frighteningly good when he was. Everyone knew of him. You know, he won play the tournament and every every tournament he played in. Rodri, you're making your lunch for uh, for work the next day. Are you cutting your sandwiches into triangles or rectangles? Um, rectangles. Yeah. Smart. Can't be going triangles. Not, not, <laughs> not as an adult. Don't think it's acceptable. Only for kids, rectangles. Yeah. <laughs> um, your favourite football experience, but as a fan, Rodri? Uh, without a doubt, um, New Camp 99, um, European Cup final. It was nice. amazing when you know the way United won that game. And yeah. bear in mind, I was I was with United at the time. We were all in our blazers. I'm always quite reserved when I watch football. You know, when I'm at games and stuff, I'm there. I completely lost it, and um, yeah, it still brings back memories. Even though I don't support United as much now, it still reminds me of a time when I did support them because um, I still still have goosebumps when I see um, those those two goals by Solskjaer and Sharon. You um, started playing in an era when there was some brilliant football boots coming out, Rodri. Um, I always loved Predators, but what was your favourite football boot? I think it was the Embro Specialis, I think. Cause, uh, so to be honest, we got them free with United because you know, they were sponsored by Embro at the time. I remember using Predators, but I always felt like, you know, you had those ridges at the end. It always felt like the ball had just bounced off. So it's probably good <laughs> if you wanted to strike the ball, but really, like, my touch wasn't great at the best of times. So when you had, like, two ridges and it was, like, hitting the ridge and just, like, bouncing, <laughs> bouncing them two metres away. And I, I think there was the World Cups as well, but always the World Cups were always quite um, thin, fitting, and I've got, like, really wide feet, so I'd wear them, and I just like my, my feet to be in bits. I did so like the World Cup. But yeah, it's funny no. you say that about the Umbros, because looking back now, I can picture every United player in the 90s wearing them Umbro boots. <laughs> yeah, Charlie's in the Yeah, we'd have them free. So, yeah. <laughs> shows you football is still still one in the freebies, even though they had um, yeah, millions in the bank. Best football book you've read, if you have at all. So, if you haven't, best book you've read. I, I love all kinds of books. And, but in terms of football book, only reason, because I'm writing a book in Welsh at the minute about my times at United and I read a book called Forever Young. It's about a guy called Adrian Doherty. He was at United's um, youth team, the same age as Giggs, and by all by all um, accounts was even more talented than Giggs. From, from, you have quotes from a lot of players at the time said he was something else. But he was yeah. different. He he was um, not a stereotypical footballer. Instead of going to watch um, United uh, games on the weekend, he'd go out busking in the city centre. Um, and he liked um, poetry and philosophy. And he used to wear second-hand clothes. Um, it's kind of because I felt a bit different sometimes. You know, when I played, I could kind of um, relate a lot. Lot what what was um. Was, um, written in a book and he, his career ended because of knee problems. He, I think he was a very quick player, he was a winger and it just took the edge off his speed. Um, it's very, it's very, his story is very sad because he, he ended up um, losing his life. In the, I think it was in the canal in um, 
in Holland when he was only 27. It doesn't say what the cause of death, you know, what happened. But Yeah, is it called Forever Young, did you say? Yeah, I mean, I'd probably look at it because I can relate a lot. Like, they talk about a lot about the initiations and dealing with injuries and that. Um, they, they've got a lot of um, quotes from young footballers United at the time. So I'm probably, it is a great book, but as well, I'm probably looking at it through my own United experience as well. May God bless and keep you always May your wishes all come true May you always do for others And let others do for you May you build a ladder to the stars And climb on it 